morning, our readings invite us into some raw human emotions. The psalmist prays out of the depths. Ezekiel offers us an image of a valley of dried out dead bones. A vast army slaughtered. Maybe the last army of Judah. Their last hope. Just dried bones. And the story in John's Gospel evokes raw emotions around the death of a loved one. In this case, a brother and a friend. And for those who actually follow the story in John, we'll be feeling the raw emotion that comes with the realisation that we are nearing the end. If we had read from last week through to this week, we will know that Jesus has taken on the hated, especially in Galilee, temple leadership, the priests and the scribes, who are seen as the wealthy suck-ups to the Romans, whose only life, goal in life is their own self-aggrandizement. So we, if we have been following that story, will be feeling the raw emotion that comes from knowing that the end is near. From knowing that if Jesus goes anywhere near Jerusalem, there can only be one outcome, as Thomas helpfully puts it. In our gospel story this morning, Jesus is actually way down the hills from Jerusalem. He's on the other side of the Jordan from maybe somewhere near Jericho, where he first met John. When he hears his good friend, his beloved friend, we're told, is very ill, he should go and see him. The problem is that Lazarus and his sisters live in Bethany, Bethany, And Bethany is very near Jerusalem, and therefore very near the temple. Worse, it appears from the Gospel accounts that Lazarus is part of the temple hierarchy. That's the Jews. As I've said, this term Jews is much better translated as Judean elite or temple hierarchy. And because he is associated with the temple hierarchy... They will be at his home, with his sisters, as custom demands. And so if Jesus goes to Bethany to see Lazarus, there will be no avoiding them. So while the rules say that he should go and see him, the prudent action would be to just send a message and to stay where he is. But Jesus initially does neither. He neither sends a message nor goes. Instead, he decides, no, this is an opportunity for God to be glorified through his actions. It is an opportunity to stir up also the priests and the scribes even more than they currently are. And so he waits two days and then he goes. John suggests that Jesus at this point knows that Lazarus has died. And when he arrives in Bethany, 
he finds that Lazarus has indeed died. In fact, he's been dead for four days. It was commonly understood that the life force of a person, we might call that the spirit or the soul, hung around for three days. And so for Lazarus to be dead for four days means that the life force is gone. There is no chance that Lazarus can come back from death. He is gone. No turning back. And to underscore that, we're told that he is rotting. He is already smelling. There is a stench. Martha goes out to meet him. We often read her line, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, as a nice statement of faith. But I wonder if it really was a statement of confrontation. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I wonder if we're willing to hear the angst in the statement. It's a statement full of regret, full of recrimination, full of love and loss. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you even send word? We thought you loved him. Where have you been? It is exactly the statement you will hear at nearly every funeral. I wish that I had done this, or we had done that, or we had talked about, or I wish you hadn't done that, or had said that, or done this. Real, raw, human emotion. And Jesus is there in the midst of that, in the midst of that deep, heartfelt grief. But Martha also plays it cool. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. There's a tinge of hope, a tinge of prompting. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. Out of which comes a conversation about resurrection. And Martha gives the right Pharisaic answer, which is also so human. But I wonder if it can be read as something more like, yes, sure, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But so what? It's out of my hands and I'll be dead when it happens. Or if it doesn't happen, so it's too far away. I can't really get my head around it. So, so, so what? I suspect that many of us in truth approach the resurrection of the dead in the same way. At some level it sounds like a good idea, but it just seems too far away. Too far in the future. And I wonder if many in John's community were thinking something very similar. So to Martha, and to John's community, and to us, John has Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Here and now. I am. Not was, not will be, but I am the resurrection and the life. 
present tense, happening now, happening all around you, happening all around us. I am the resurrection and the life. Can we see it? And then we have this word belief, which, as I have also said on many occasions, is better translated as trust. So we can change the text to, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who trust in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and trusts in me will never die. Do you trust this? Then Martha goes and gets Mary and she and Jesus have a conversation during which, during which we are shown a glimpse of Jesus' own sense of loss in all of this. His real human emotion. And then Jesus goes to the smelly tomb and orders Lazarus to come out. The Message Bible offers it like this. Lazarus come out. And he came out, a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told him, told them, unwrap him and let him loose. I've said on multiple occasions that these stories, these gospel stories, are not historical stories, not not biographies that we read and know more about Jesus. They are theology told in stories. And when Jesus is saying to Lazarus, come out, because he is the resurrection and the life now, he is also saying to John's hearers, come out, and to us, come out. And when he commands, unwrap him and let him loose, he is also commanding that we too are unwrapped and let loose. So what is it that holds us in death? This length. What is it that we need to be unwrapped from and let loose from? Over these last few weeks in Lent, I've been talking about a different spiritual practice. And this week is the last one, because next week is Palm Sunday and we'll be too busy reenacting the story. And so this week I want to talk about the daily office, which sounds a bit like going to work each day, and in some ways it is like that, but actually refers to morning and evening prayer, the daily office. From the earliest records of the early church, it's very clear that fixed hour prayer was one of the oldest forms of prayer along with the Eucharist. The early church met at least twice a day, in the morning and the evening, and in some parts met three times a day. This was done as an offering to God, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and it was done as a way to learn to fulfil Paul's instruction to pray without ceasing. A couple of weeks ago I talked about St. Benedict of Nursia, who translated a lot of the practices and learnings from the Desert Fathers and Mothers to the Western Church. His rule of life became the basis for most of the monastic rules that followed for the Western Church. And his rule was based around prayer, study and sacred reading. The prayer was done in daily offices. 
In fact, Benedict had his monks and sisters, nuns, meeting every three hours, more or less, to pray. That's eight times a day. Not a lot of room for sleep in there. You kind of got it when you were allowed. And the services, his offices, were based around, were the same as the early church. A lot of singing of psalms. And if you go to a Benedictine service today, about two-thirds of it is singing psalms. And they get through the book of psalms, depending on their calendar, their lectionary, in one to three weeks. Why would they sing the psalms? Well, the same reason we read them in our service. Because they invite us to bring our raw, real human emotions into our prayer life. They invite us to be real. And like Mary and Martha, to know Jesus is present in the midst of that. Weeping, railing, rejoicing with us. They also, in their daily offices, read scripture and prayed prayers of intercession. Finishing with a prayer reminding them that they are mortal and what they want to happen when they die. It's a sobering thing to go to eight services a day and to be reminded that you're going to die. In the Anglican tradition, Thomas Cramner, who is the first writer of our prayer books, was a Benedictine. I don't know if he was an actual Benedictine monk at any point, but he certainly followed the way of Benedict. And so his prayer book, on which our prayer books are based, included both a morning and evening prayer. It was his hope that every village in England would gather in the morning and at night and say the prayers together. That the life of the village would be bookended by prayer. The gift of those officers, as they are called, has been passed down. And while Cramner only had a morning and evening prayer, more recent prayer books have included a midday prayer and a night prayer, including our own prayer book. In fact, one of the prayers in our night prayer is one of the most famous prayers out of that prayer book. It is the prayer that our prayer book is known for around the world. It's what sells it in big numbers in North America. That's why we don't actually have copyright for our own prayer book for North America. It's a little weird, but never mind. And some provinces now offer daily office books, whole books of different services for morning, midday, evening and night prayer on seven cycles of seven. I'm not going to get into that. That's too difficult. And other groups, including the Franciscans, have also produced daily office books, and there are Celtic daily office books as well. We sometimes see these as something for the clergy. This is what clergy should do. They should pray the daily office because that's their job. It's in their job description. But actually, if we go back to Cramner, his vision was that we all pray the daily office, not just the clergy. We are all invited to stop and pray. So why would we want to pray the office? Well, for a start, it helps us pray regularly. Even one office a day changes our rhythms and our priorities. It reorientates us to the rhythms of God 
it shifts our priorities from our urgencies to God's urgencies. To stop, to be still, to pray, to listen. And in this reorientation we are unbound, set free. We are invited to live the resurrection now. In making this priority, we are turned from the mundane to the divine. We are turned from the inward, what are our needs, to the outward, God in all creation. And we are invited to be honest with ourselves, with God, to acknowledge our raw human emotions, the same raw human emotions we find in today's readings. And to pray with the psalmists out of the depths. Some of you are probably thinking, well, why would we want to use the offices? We can pray without the daily office. And that is true, and lots of people do. But the words of the office are also important in all of this. They are the vehicle by which God invites us to come out, to be gently unbound. When we pray those words, we join with others who have prayed them for 2,000 years. And some of those prayers have been prayed, for example, the Psalms, for much, much longer. Most of the prayers that you pray in the daily office are found in Scripture. And when we pray them, we join all the others who have prayed them, and who will pray them this day and who will pray them tomorrow and the days ahead. We join the cascade of Christians who have and will pray around the world with us. We will join unceasing prayer. We play our part. Those who pray before us pray their part. Those who pray after us pray their part. And when we pray these words... We don't notice this, but those words act on us like sandpaper. They slowly grind us away. Our hearts and minds are sanded by God, moulded and changed. And we become people who can live the resurrection now. In this church, although we should pray morning prayer every day, we pray it on Wednesday and Thursday at 930 on Friday we have preschool music at 9.30 and on Tuesdays we have our midweek Eucharist at 9.30. You can join us for any of those. This prayer is the prayer that holds us together. It establishes our rhythm of life and community. And so I invite you to join me on a Wednesday and Thursday at 9.30. If you can be here that would be good. But I invite you, if you can't, to pray a daily office at home using your prayer books. Or, if you can't do it at 9.30, to pray at a time that suits you. So that we then pray our own cascade of prayers. And in our prayers, we join the cascade of prayers happening around the world. In this... I hope that you may hear Christ's invitation to come out and to be let loose. So on these final last two weeks of Lent, as a final spiritual practice, I invite you to pray the daily office 
at least once a day.